Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 508. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 880 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2021, Farm Girl Flowers. Farm Girl Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting more than 20 U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $9 million of U.S.-grown fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually and providing competitive salaries and benefits to team members based in Watsonville, California, and Miami, Florida. Discover more at farmgirlflowers.com. For each podcast episode this year, we also thank three of our major sponsors. Our first thank you goes to Red Twig Farms. Based in Johnstown, Ohio, Red Twig is a family-owned farm specializing in peonies, daffodils, tulips, and branches. A popular peony bouquet by mail program and their Spread the Hope campaign where customers purchase tulip stems for essential workers and others in their community. Learn more at redtwigfarms.com. Today, we continue our series to highlight the talented speaker lineup for the upcoming Slow Flowers Summit, taking place June 28th through 30th at Filoli Historic House and Garden in Woodside, California. With an extended conversation I'm excited to share with you, please meet Abra Lee, horticulturist, author, speaker, and founder of the media platform called Conquer the Soil. Based in Atlanta, Abra says she is a self-proclaimed horticulturist extraordinaire that is half country bumpkin, half bougie, occasionally extra, and inherently Southern. She writes, The opportunities I've been fortunate to experience during my career in the garden industry have far surpassed my ancestors' wildest dreams. Educated at Auburn University College of Agriculture in Auburn, Alabama, with a BS in horticulture and a Distinguished Leadership in Public Horticulture Fellow from Longwood Gardens in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, Aber takes notes on plants and pop culture and shares her observations across her blog and social media. Count on Abra to bring her distinct perspective to horticulture, popular culture, fashion, celebrity, and the history of black gardeners. Her impressive professional path began as a city arborist, which led to landscape management roles at two major international airports in both Atlanta and Houston, and as a University of Georgia extension agent. Years of research into the history of Black American gardeners propelled Abra to collect her research into a new book scheduled for publication in the fall of 2022. The book is called Conquer the Soil, Black America and the Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers, and Growers. Conquer the Soil profiles 45 hidden figures of horticulture, the black men and women whose accomplished careers in the plant world are little known or untold. Among them are Wormley Hughes, an enslaved African-American who was head gardener at Monticello and Doug Jefferson's grave, 
Annie Van Reed, an ex-teacher turned entrepreneur in South Carolina who owned a five-acre greenhouse and nursery in the 1940s that sold millions of plants and seeds, and David August Williston, a graduate of Cornell University and the first African-American landscape architect, a student of Liberty Hyde Bailey and the designer of the Tuskegee University campus. Abra's lively text will be enriched by illustrations of each individual, making this forthcoming book as beautiful as it is critically important. In Conquer the Soil, Abra, a rising star in the plant world, gives these women and men the spotlight they deserve and enriches our collective understanding of the history of horticulture. As we discuss in today's episode, Abra has an infectious passion about the people she's discovered through her research. She has lectured extensively on African Americans and ornamental horticulture, gathering her research of 600 years of history from pre-colonial Africa to today, and the artistic contributions of black gardeners, horticulturists, educators, and landscape architects to the green profession. While continuing her research for her upcoming book on the subject, Abra has unearthed an incredible narrative of Black Americans in floristry. She will share these stories of people, their flowers, and their entrepreneurism in a new talk for the Slow Flowers Summit audience. Her presentation, The History of the Black American Florist, will inspire our attendees with her storytelling gifts as she brings their untold stories to life, giving voice to the important history about Black pioneers in horticulture, floriculture, landscape architecture, and botany. I can't wait to be there, and I know today's conversation will inspire you. Let's jump right in and hear more. You can find photographs, social media links, and more in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. I am thrilled today to introduce my dear friend, Abra Lee of Conquer the Soil, based in Atlanta. Hi, Abra. Hi, Deborah. I'm so excited to be here. It's so great to see you. Oh, I know. It it's really fun. Is. It's fun that we're looking at each other on Zoom, but we will be together in a month at the Slow Flowers Summit, and Abra is one of our featured presenters, and I just wanted to share her with uh, our Slow Flowers podcast community and just introduce her to everyone. So thanks for joining me. Thank you for um, having me, and it's been a long time coming. We discussed this in Utah in 2019, and it's finally arrived, so. I know, I know, and and for a little backstory, uh, Abra and I became friends through the reason we were in Utah, the Garden Garden Com Association, formerly Garden Writers Association. But I think when we first really connected was in Chicago, and mm-hmm. I was doing a flower bar with the people at Johnny's Seeds, and you just jumped right in and made your own pin-on flowers, and you modeled them in your hair. And I was, just, I got a cute, <laughs> pic- I have a cute picture of that day. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. But yeah, that's me. I'm just, I'm nosy. I'm curious. It's just me, you know, piddling around at the trade show. Was that? And you had a lot of cool stuff on your table. Yeah, that was maybe the year prior to that anyway, 2018, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm thrilled that you're going to be at the summit. It wouldn't have worked out in 2020. And as it turns out, uh, you weren't available. So, as, you know, the, the silver lining of COVID is I get you in 2021 to come present. Uh, but just to introduce what is Conquer the Soil and who is April Lee, can you want to tell everybody a little bit of a snapshot of this multifaceted communications um, endeavor that you have? Because you're, you've got your, your fingers in a lot of flower pots. Sure, I think. sure. Um, uh, April Lee is a writer, a speaker, and I'm a horticulturist 
by trade and training. That is what I majored in in college. And Conquer the Soil is a community where I use things like um, history and pop culture and fashion to really uplift and communicate the art of ornamental horticulture. So people don't come to me for tips on how to grow their flowers. They may uh, come to me to learn about some real floral legends in the game and I can just share really cool stories. So a lot of storytelling goes on with Conquer the Soil. Mm -hmm. I mean, you do, you do writing, you, you lecture, you consult, uh, Mm -hmm. and I know you're working on a book, so we'll talk about that before we wrap up. Um, but the business is most people engage with you online. Is that correct? Like through your Instagram feed or your website? Yeah, I would say most people do, um, engage with, well, it's two types of people that engage with me. So regular, regular, everyday people like me definitely engage with me on social media, Instagram, my other pages, I've just kind of abandoned them. But in terms of my work, I really do a lot of work with cultural institutions. So what I mean by that is botanical gardens, arboretums, museums, uh, those type of places. So that's, that's where my, my day-to-day is interacting with those institutions Mm -hmm. and keeping my lights on through them. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense because you're, um, you're very accessible on Instagram just with other fl- plant geeks and flower lovers um, who have just stumbled across your posts. And uh, they're always, we'll, we'll share a few of them so people can see. They're always like very rich and multifaceted with uh, whatever, whatever topic, uh, you know, catches your fancy, you, you share it, share it with people. Um, but the thing with the cultural institutions, did that all kind of come out of your professional background in horticulture and then going, going to graduate school? It did. And I, I didn't go to graduate school and I went through what, what was a graduate degree was the Longwood Fellows Program. So okay. Sorry. It's no, like, that's okay. It's a special program, right? It's a special okay. program. Three years prior to me joining, the Longwoods Fellows Program was a graduate program and had been for decades and decades. Um, and yes, my whole, I would say from probably the third year, maybe even the second year, probably the third year of my horticulture career out of college, graduated from Auburn University, College of Agriculture, I started in public service. So mm-hmm. um that is a form of public horticulture. So I was an arborist, a municipal arborist for the city of Atlanta Department of Parks. And from there, I would say I caught my first big break. And I guess I say that in air quotes. And that was as landscape manager of Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. And so that, I was young. I was completely feeling imposter syndrome, but that job changed my life. And it honestly changed the course of my career. And then since I brought up the Longwood Fellows Program, that really allowed me into the door of the world of cultural institutions and public horticulture. And I felt like I am finally home because I just, I love the arts. Right. And to be able to attach that to the art of horticulture and floriculture and arboriculture is, it's a dream. It really is. That's really interesting because there is sort of this ongoing conversation in the floral space about whether floral design is a form of art. And I'm sure that that conversation is, at least in your circles, is happening about horticulture. You know, it's, it's, you're using the word ornamental when you describe your interest in horticulture. So it is art. It's just, um, maybe not the classics like sculpture or painting, but. 
Yeah, I mean, I forgot who said that horticulture uh, or gardening was the slowest of the performing arts. Someone said that. Oh, I love that. Famous. (laughs) And it's true, though. It really, really is. Um, And for me, it is art. And I think especially because I've done so much research, specifically in Black garden history the past 11 years, so many of these floriculturists and horticulturists and landscape architects were artists and musicians and and painters, and they were also in the world that we live in. So I personally can't or don't separate the two. I think that you can be multi-layered in in many things. And that's that's the hill I'm a down. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. Well, since you brought up your research in um, Black horticulture, Black gardening, um, I pulled up the description of your new book. And um, I just thought I could share, I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's it's not for is it for sale already? I know you're it's in the works. It is no, I don't think it's available for pre-sale, but I know that it is out there and um on the internet thanks to to Timber Press. They've done a wonderful job there. Yeah, I actually found this on <clears throat> on the Workman Press site and Workman is a affiliated publisher with Timber, right? The parent company, yes. So Conquer the Soil is going to be the title of the book. That is correct. I and love I, it. <laughs> thank you. I did not coin those words. They came from the fabulous Dr. W.B. Du Bois, but I certainly ran with it. So I could never put something together like that. Well, give us that context. I I, I didn't know that I, when I first met you and your business name was Conquer the Soil, I'm like, oh, that's cute. But I had no idea that there <laughs> it was a historical reference, uh, you know, from one of your you know, I guess, role models and, and influencers. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think just a, a true role model and influencer to the United States, let alone the world, and certainly the civil rights movement. And um, in the book, The Soul of Black Folks, which it was written in the early 1900s, maybe 1901 by W.B. Du Bois, in a part of that book, he writes um, about the enslaved Africans and their gift to the Americas, to the United States. And he said there were three gifts that they brought, the gift of story and song, the gift of uh, strength and brawn, which was their ability to conquer the soil, and then also their gift of spirit. Mm. And so when I read that, and he was putting that into the context of what they brought here with them through the transatlantic slave trade, I just thought it was, I mean, he wrote it in such a beautiful intellectual academic way, and I have made it into my own thing, but I certainly use him and many others as North Stars mm. to, to to focus on when I do my work. Mm. That's really cool. I'm glad I'm, for many reasons that the book is titled Conquer the Soil. One, from like a pure kind of uh, commercial marketing, re- like, good, that's your brand. It better be on the cover of that book because <laughs> people need to know who Abra Lee is. So um, right now, at least on the <clears throat> Workman's site, it says... Um, Conquer the Soil, Black America, and the Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers, and Growers. So that's that's a big undertaking. Uh, do you feel like you have this massive responsibility to do all this historical research and writing that has been ignored up until now? I, it is a responsibility, and it's a joy, and it's a lot of work, and I also feel that I was chosen to do it. I, I deeply feel like I'm living in my purpose. And I didn't, I honestly started reaching these, researching these stories for my own um, benefit because when I started out at Hartsville Jackson Atlanta Airport, social media was in its infancy. And I didn't really have any um, 
I, I, I had role models, but it was, I wanted more and mm-hmm. I needed to see that level of success. And uh, one of my mentors at the time, a gentleman named Ryan Ganey, who was a, a world famous guard designer, uh, passed away, God rest his soul. And my mom, we were hanging out at his house and he told me, um, and I was sharing my struggles with the airport. I was doing my job and showing up every day, but you come home and you're just like, they're going to find me out one day. They're going to figure out I'm not supposed to be here and they're going to send me home. Well, you were, you were pretty young and you were female, but they probably also, uh, they probably have had, uh, black, uh, managers before, but in terms of just your age and your gender, that probably was, uh, part of your, like you said, imposter syndrome, even though you're, you're, you know, now that you knew what you were doing. (laughs) Right. I did. No, I, I, it was certainly my age came into play. I think for, for the men across the table, it was certainly my gender. For me, it was the age. Mm. I never even thought of, uh, the gender part. And, um, there were, there was certainly black people in leadership at the airport. The whole airport was black lit as is much of the city of Atlanta. Um, however, I felt like I needed to look at someone like me who had had a similar experience and, the suggestion from Ryan and my mom, who um, is a retired educator in history, were uh, you need to to know your garden history. And I thought that they meant go to the Bible and start with the hanging gardens of Babylon and move forward <laughs> through the garden design canon. And my mom said, no, Abra, your garden history. And she said, who do you think was the gardeners when I was growing up? Who do you think laid the landscape at these HBCUs, these historical black colleges and universities? When she said that, I was thinking, you're right. Of course, we've done this work. And that's when I started seeking to find uh, these wonderful people that I now know about. And um, I started sharing them in my presentations, my local presentations that I was given as an airport manager. And then I went on to work in UGA Extension. And um, it was in Utah is when I met the folks at Timber Press and was able to discuss this. And, and they thought it might make a great idea for a book. And before that, it was just presentations to me. I didn't think of that. So. Wow. Wow. So it's like you've been writing this book through your work uh, before it was actually given the language of, oh, it's a book. It's going to be a hardback book. It's going to have, you know, hundreds of pages. It was just, it's just like this, everything you've been doing led you to this point where you've got this, it's going to be like, I, I, like a seminal work that people will be able to read in schools, have in libraries, you know, having, you know, sort of all of horticulture. Well, I, I certainly hope it makes it accessible to people. And when I say people, because my, my family, even though I grew up in Atlanta, we went to Barnesville, uh, my mom's hometown on the weekends to the farm that she grew up on. So I wanted, I think about the people in rural areas too, mm-hmm. in rural America and, and making sure that this book is accessible to them because everything just isn't online. Yeah, I didn't um, mean to imply that it's going to be a textbook or super academic. It's oh, yeah. going to be storytelling, which is your your, oh, yeah. your favorite this, vernacular. It, it's going to be just like I'm talking to you, Deborah. I couldn't be an academic if I tried. I have no idea how they write and think and speak like that. And um, <laughs> God didn't make me that way. And if anything, and, and you didn't imply it in a negative yeah. way. I'm just saying that when you're out, at least um, I haven't been in a while to Barnesville, but when you're down there in those rural areas, you don't necessarily have Wi-Fi. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you just got to read a book. And mm-hmm. so that to me is what mattered, just, you know, writing it out old school. And in terms of um, these people, I was joking since we brought up Timber Press, Tom yeah. at Timber Press, I was telling him, 
I feel like Whoopi Goldberg, uh, when she's Oda May in the movie Ghost, and she realizes she has this, these these uh, supernatural people can hear her all of a sudden. You know, she's faking it. And then they start coming around and she's like, Oh, wow. Wait a minute. What did I do? Yeah, so, right. So it was, I, I started one story and then the next one came. And now I will wake up in the middle of the night thinking about some of these folks. And I've realized y'all just won't leave me alone until I finish writing. So oh my God. These people who have come before us, I mean, way before us, are certainly my motivation. And I don't say that in a, I say that in the most beautiful, loving way, but I'm right. like, y'all just not gonna let me sleep tonight. My gosh. So. I love that. I mean, talk about the, the <laughs> legacy that you're you're bringing to light. I, I love that. Um, well, is it true you've got a, like, I know you've researched probably hundreds of people, but you've had to kind of choose how many to include in the book. And do you have that figured out or is that still yeah. in, in progress? I, I, I do have it figured out. I think there's about five that I'm going back and forth on. Some people have long, detailed um, stories. We know a lot about their life and some people, it may be a page and, and mm. I would love to know more. And mm. I may not necessarily have been able to track down their ancestors. And in a lot of cases, these folks, their grandkids have passed on. So mm-hmm. at this point, who am I really talking to that really even knows anything about that person? Um, and it's 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 honestly been like stitching together a patchwork quilt mm. with there's no instructions and you just put it together and things start working out. And um, one thing leads to another. And honestly, I do want to add this as well. I have to, I will forever acknowledge the elders, meaning the the senior citizens of the world of the United States that told me so many of these things. Remember, I told you I started off doing speaking engagements about these folks, and there would always be somebody of advanced age in the audience to say, well, you know this little old lady in my town in South Carolina, and I would go follow it, and it would be true. So it's mm. so much of it was word of mouth, and when we lose <clears throat> the elders, we lose a lot. That oral history. Mm-hmm. Well, there were times when you had to rely on kind of traditional uh, research methods, like I'm sure like archival or library or newspapers. And I mean, talk a little bit about what you've been doing over the last almost two years to gather these stories. I I will say that it, it is a form of privilege to be able to do this. And what I mean by that is it's, it's a privilege that I have friends that work at many academic institutions that let me borrow their passwords and log in to find the research I need because so much of specifically Black history in America exists in so many different spaces. Um, UMass may own the papers to one person. Michigan may own the letters from another person. And I just think this should not have to be this difficult. Mm. And I mentioned along with fellowship there were times I was able to travel to New York and go to the Schomburg Center and do research. So if you don't have that level of time on your hands, and it's not that I didn't, and I own that um, my boyfriend's an engineer and he was able to financially support some of those moments when I needed to take a month off to go check out a historical society. So it's it, it really should be more accessible to people. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's kind of really my biggest goal here. Um, and again, just going through archives, I mean, this stuff is on micro, is it microfilm? Is that what they call it? Microfilm? Is that those like little like things that you slide through a viewer and read on, I'm like a, like a film negative kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Some of that. And then I'm convinced, I'm personally convinced, and I read this once about 
the uh, National African American History Museum at the Smithsonian, that they ended up overwhelmingly going into, for lack of better words, going into people's attics. Yeah. And it was folks' grandmama's grandmama's trunk is how they filled up that museum. And that's how I feel about these, because so much of this is maybe captured in an archive or at a university or maybe in a paper. And some of it was word of mouth. And I think, well, the real stories are still tucked away in somebody's granny's attic somewhere. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's so much to, I think we could do this the rest of our lives, Deborah, and still never know. And yeah. that's how good um, these stories are. They're just amazing. Well, I've sat in on a couple of your virtual presentations because thanks to COVID, <laughs> there are a lot of lecture series that happen virtually. And I've seen some of your wonderful images um, that you've reproduced out of old books or out of yearbooks or newspaper articles. And like, you've got this, this mother load of great stuff. Um, but you started telling me that uh, the floral connection to a lot of the people you researched. And um, I'm so grateful that you're going to gather those floral specific stories into your presentation for the Slow Flowers Summit and give us a, a, a wonderful evening talking about the history of the Black American florist. Um, what can you sort of fill in the blanks on from what I just said? Like, is it true that you had a lot of uh, people who were maybe arborists or horticulturists who also had some foot in floristry that you, you stumbled across? Absolutely. I would say especially with um, the, the folks that were artists that may have gone to school to study art, but for whatever reason decided to go. Um, there's one gentleman, uh, and I don't know, should I say the name? Well, I guess of course I should say yeah, the name. Yeah, let's tease it. Let's tease it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I think about a gentleman named Asa Sims at Hampton University, and he was an artist and wanted to go to school for art. However, his work-study program at Hampton assigned him to the greenhouse. People got assigned different ways. For whatever reason, right. the gods decided he was going to the greenhouse, and so that shifted him and he decided instead of the paintbrush, he was going to paint his legacy through flowers, right? And in, in, in planting flowers. And he was a florist and helped found the Negro Women's Garden Club of Virginia and did, I mean, just went all over the South doing beautification work, teaching classes, making his own 3D models, bringing cut flowers, buckets of them to presentations to teach people the art of floristry. So I think about someone like him. I think about, um, Another woman I've talked about publicly, and I'm going to share more, uh, uh, the Slow Flowers movement, I think about uh, Bessie Weaver and how she's the first Black florist west of the Mississippi. And she also really was an advocate for women to open up their own flower shops. And she taught the art of floriculture. She taught design classes. So, because she wanted women to make their own money. And mm. this is a time where Women weren't necessarily encouraged to do that mm -hmm. um, and grew her own flowers and saved her money and talked about it was, uh, she didn't use the word struggle, but she owned, I was washing clothes before this. I saved that money to propagate my geraniums and grow my own plants. So when you just think about it in that way, I mean, it's, it's, it's overwhelming in the best way. It's humbling. It's inspiring. It just makes you just want to go do better because they weren't just only trying to up people's uplift people's lives through flowers they were just trying to be good people in society and mm -hmm. they were mm -hmm. and i think that it gives us some grace and some space to have courage and 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 um stand for our communities mm -hmm. wow that's it's gonna be fun and i'm i'm excited to i i don't know 
how much of a floral designer you are, but I'm excited to see what happens when we do some of our floral uh, installations <laughs> at Filoli. Uh, you're going to have to dive right in and get the clippers and show yeah. your stuff. <laughs> I can't look, I'm not even going to lie. I, I took floor, I took a, a florist class in college at Auburn. Um, Stanley Sistrunk was the, the floor cultures then. And he was really famous in, in Auburn circles for his uh, floral art. And I was on a flower crew. That was my first job what? outside of the Auburn greenhouses. My first internship, I was on a floriculture crew. So that's the extent of my flower <laughs> legacy. Beyond that, it went into trees and airports. So Wait, what did you do on the floral crew? Was it like uh, making arrangements for the university? It was. So uh, when I was on the, the floral crew, I was working at estate gardens in Atlanta. Mm. So I, 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 I'm a name drop here, but it's not like this man knows me. Um, so I would go three times a week and do work on the flower beds at Arthur Blank's house, who owns the Atlanta Falcons and was one of the co-founders of Home Depot. He does not know me at all. But, but he, he better know you now. <laughs> well, let me tell you, ex- exceptional taste. That man had exceptional taste uh, with the flower beds and how they were laid out so beautifully. So, And I spent a summer doing that. And then when I was at Atlanta Airport, I was very big on floriculture beds. And I know people feel certain ways about that. And I didn't care at the airports. They're the first thing you see, the last thing you remember when you're traveling. And I wanted those bold, bright colors to really uplift people because traveling is stressful. So yeah, I believe in the power of flowers. And I really mean that. I love that. We'll talk a little bit about it. When you say floriculture beds, is that that term bedding out? Like you're using kind of a, a pattern, you're using flowers to create a, a, a pattern or some kind of uh, graphic? Exactly. Exactly. So it may be, um, when I say cottage garden, it may be as many different textures as possible Mm -hmm. touching each other. It may be the concept of the yin and the yang. So a swash of yellow against a swash of purple, and it's a smaller bed, and you're only going to go with something simple. Or it may be something like uh, the river runs through it. So you may have that one solid uh, swash of color, Mm -hmm. and then around it would be different groups of colors. Um, so those type of patterns, very, and I'm owning, I mean, because an airport is a commercial environment. Right, it wasn't right. It's not a residential, a, yeah. Oh, it's completely over the top. And I have beautiful <laughs> pictures of it. Yeah. Well, and I the love, crew that work with me, Simply Flowers. <laughs> yeah, I love the story you told in one of your lectures about how to, how you kind of helped some of your more like, our, you know, entry-level hourly workers take ownership of the fact that they too could be creative and express themselves um, this way. And I, I just love that um, way that you mentored, you know, maybe they people who didn't have a level of training you had. Right. Many of the people, my crew in Atlanta, um, I worked with contractors. It was all people of color. And my, my personal, the non-contractors that worked with me, and by people of color, I mean, let me be very clear, Latino men and Latino women, that was the people of color. And my in-house crew that was not a contractor that reported to me every day were five black women and a black man. And I, and I say this for a very real reason, because people have this perception that we don't do this type of work. And by we, I mean black people. We just don't do floriculture. We don't work outside and design flower beds. And, and that's just not true. Right. And the reason I say that is because when I was interviewing for these positions, there were many people in the room with me and they thought, oh, this lady, I don't know about her. She probably can't do this job. But what I could see when they came in for the first interview, the second interview, I saw their nails had changed colors. I saw their hair had changed. I saw they went from red glasses to blue. And I was like, oh, baby, you got design. You know this. Like, you 
understand style. You understand color. You understand what's on trend, what's not on trend. Matter of fact, you're a trendsetter. And so when I looked at the outside of them, I was like, teaching you flowers, that's the easy part. Like, this is what I need in my life. And I'm so glad. So being 28, I was, I wasn't thinking, well, let me see your floriculture resume. I didn't care. And that was the best thing I ever did was just to really honestly judge the book by the cover Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and that hiring. And I told them, I said, look, apply that same swag to the flower beds. I'll teach, I'll explain, you know, coarse and fine textures. I'll explain warm and cool colors. Just bring, bring that sauce you got, that (laughs) razzle dazzle, bring it every day. As my friend Cola from Black in the Garden says, razzle dazzle. And we'll work out the rest. And we did. And and so what happened is that these men and women, we ended up building an award-winning uh, floriculture and horticulture program from scratch. And their big, um, I would say their big ta-da moment or uh, whatever, I guess that's what I'm trying to say, yeah. ta-da moment, is that they put, what well, they built a, um, a 17-foot floral clock that was installed and it stood up for 10 years in Atlanta. And we worked with some folks from St. Louis um, at AmeriClock and they worked with my team. And that was part of the deal. I was like, look, it was a win-win. They want the contract for the clock. I want my team to work on it. We're going to have to work together. And they knew they had to use my ladies and my guys to mm-hmm. do the work. And they did. Mm-hmm. So, so like that's some, how you make it happen. Like something you'd see at Epcot Center or like of oh, that yeah. scale. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. Just a beautiful clock that light up at night, change colors, and the face is all floral. And then the beds around it were just floral. It was beautiful. Now... Okay. It's all gone, but you know, not my, my look, I've been gone from that airport 13 years. So, (laughs) you know what? I mean, I guess that's the issue with, with gardens. You have to let them move through your hands. And sometimes when you're done, you know, caring for them, it's, it, it, you have the memories and the pictures. I do. Yeah, I do. And not to be wasteful, but you're right. They're ephemeral. We talked about them being the slowest of the performing arts, but new people come in construction, you know, travel patterns change, planes got to land a different way. Sometimes those things have to go, but they live in your heart. Well, it kind of makes me think of what you're doing on your Instagram feed for Conquer the Soil. I, you, you will find something that's happening in like professional sports or theater or film or music, and you will find the plant connection and post about that. And I feel so excited every time I see something that I like, well, I think once you posted about Jimi Hendrix because his father was oh, a yeah. gardener and I was yeah. so excited to show it to my son because he went to the same high school in Seattle that Jimi Hendrix graduated from. And, you know, he kind of rolled his eyes, but I knew he was sort of interested in it. Like, oh, well, that's a cool <laughs> connection, you know, <laughs> but I mean, you do this, you do this all the time. So what happens? You, you, do you have the the idea first and then you go find the connection or do you just already have this so like you're so fluent in it you know immediately what what to post it it, it's really just about connecting the dots I'll see something that I think is cool and back to that crew that flower Mm -hmm. crew in Atlanta they were the ones that really forced me to meet them where they are right so I knew I couldn't just force uh soil science down their throat but I knew that if I found a way and I could say okay, you have ombre braids today. I can see that your pink braids are starting to have orange tips on them. And then when I was able to say, this is just the same as if you're doing a flower bed. And even though it may be a monochromatic or a, um, uh, I forgot the other type of uh, color schemes, I would compare it to their hair or their nails or their car. I would would say, okay, candy paint, same thing. We're going with candy paint, minkas. And it was about meeting people where they were. And I've realized I needed to speak 
the language of everyday humans and get this Auburn speak out of my head that we tend to use in our industry. No one talks like that. Nobody. <laughs> so it, I would say they forced me to do those type of things. And I realized that, oh, people actually can see it too. So I know every time I post one of those, Deborah, I'm like, nobody's going to understand what I'm talking about. And people like you make me, make me feel seen. So I'm so thrilled. Thank you. <laughs> but obviously you, that experience at the airport kind of made you a better communicator because you, you did sort of get out of the sort of science of horticulture and into popular culture. And, uh, now your audience is so much larger because of that. So congratulations on finding your voice, really. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it speaks to um, self-taught is so relevant and so valid and so needed because Auburn taught me the language. It got me the job where I could go in an interview and say the things that people wanted to hear. But once you get past that, you're dealing with real people mm-hmm. and you have to be able to connect with them and, and and meet them the way that they are. And I felt like that made me have to throw the book out the window and they didn't care about the scientific names and not saying those things are important, but there are other ways. And as they say, there's more than one way to, to skin a cat, not a kitty cat, a catfish, right? You can scale it. You can you know, oh, chop it. Is that where that it. phrase came from? Yeah, it came from, that's the way I was taught. With than, catfish. Okay. Yeah, it's more than one way to skin a catfish. So okay. More than one way to skin a cat. I like yeah. that. I like that a it lot. It sounds way better than skinning a kitty cat. <laughs> Seriously, I never knew that. But um, of course, uh, I will always think of that now when we have our <laughs> catfish fries. Um, well, speaking of Auburn, I noticed that more pretty recently you were invited back to speak to the students in the horticulture program and got recognized for that. Is does that something you're doing more and more now? Yes, I have. Uh, my university has certainly reconnected with me. We They definitely reached out when I had the job at the airport and made a big to-do. And then I left Atlanta. I moved on to Texas and then I went to um, Pennsylvania. And coming back and them following my journey, by them I mean the College of Agriculture, mm-hmm. they've just been very gracious to me, um, Auburn University. And so I was nominated by one of my old professors, Dr. Amy Wright, for uh, a women in agriculture, a black alumni award. And uh, I was, I was uh, awarded it and I was so proud. And um, it was just, I think a very full circle moment for me. Cause I thought once I left Auburn, I left, but the fact that they're in my life, I have a mentor there now, uh, Jonathan Hampton, who's doing wonderful. And he is in going into, I think his senior year now, or maybe kind of halfway junior, Mm -hmm. senior year. Mm -hmm. He's a young um, black student there that will be a landscape architect and uh, does landscape work in the summer, loves flowers as well. So Auburn has just, it, it's just, it's family to me. And yeah. it's um, allowed me to, you know, keep, I'm locked and loaded with my Southern roots, Deborah. Yeah. <laughs> like I am yeah. in there and, you know, bring some pride to Alabama because Georgia and Alabama, I mean, we deserve all the <laughs> smoke that we get down here because we are a mess. Yes. We really are. Well, you are a, the po- a positive force and uh, <laughs> I love that. I. I'm so, I love that you're mentoring uh, a young person who's going to do great things. And uh, you needed that person to mentor you and you looked around and didn't didn't see as many of those influences. So hopefully um, through your efforts, we're shining a light on more amazing contemporary black horticulturists and people in uh, all aspects of, of the green space who are, you know, bringing their creativity. And I know I've, 
working, you know, diligently to try to find, uh, invite black florists and black flower farmers to join Slow Flowers because we're all richer for many points of view and many experiences. So, um, Absolutely. You're totally my inspiration for that. So. Oh, thank you. Mine, likewise. likewise. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see you in a month. Uh, Before we sign off, uh, give me a give me a snapshot of what's what's left to get conquer the soil done, and what else are big things you want to share for this year. We'll for sure put you you know the link to your website where you probably have your speaking calendar listed, but. uh, I know. Um, I know you've got a yeah. lot cooking. Yeah. What's What's left to come? Um, just tying up some loose ends with some of the profiles. So completing the stories. Mm. And what I mean by that is, uh, some of them. Uh, again, the information didn't come to. I didn't just sit down and go through Bessie Weaver's history. It was over the course of years. So, uh, organizing those things and and on paper, um, completing that part of it. And then, in terms of speaking, um. A lot of my engagements that were online have shifted to in-person. So for the first time, I'll be going to Martha's Vineyard and I'm feeling real fancy and real bougie <laughs> down here in Georgia because I can't, I'll be speaking at uh, Poly Hill Arboretum this summer. I'm doing some work through the consultant work I do with Lord Cultural Resources, doing some uh, really exciting work, uh, working with the New York Botanical Garden. Um, and wow. what just uh, continuing to write, um, expanding, uh, sticking roots down in, in the UK and working with one of my colleagues there to introduce Conquer the Soil to that audience. So that's like my big fall project that I'm working on. That's awesome. Um, and continuing to, to, to write, Deborah. what I mean by that is that I'm the best communicator through my pen. And I remember yeah. my teacher in high school said, he who holds the pen holds the power. And so I just really believe that. And as much as I love and appreciate social media, I just, it's just the it makes me dizzy. And I was like, you know, when I just sit here and write by hand, I'm so much better. So just sharing more stories, even outside of black garden history, just cool stuff, dope stuff. So conquer the soil. The book will be out in the fall of 2022. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. Well, we'll keep everybody posted on how to order that copy. We'll probably have to do something together when the book comes out. Um, and then you just showed me some cool um, Conquer the Soil merch that you're going to bring with you to oh, the yeah. summit. So uh, you'll have some prints and um, they're kind of... A few bags, yeah, some magnets, just little stuff that is um, of the people that I'm talking about. Because a lot of times people want the picture that I'm showing. I'm like, you know what? Let me give it to you then. So, <laughs> and I made it look like pop art y'all. So I don't of course. get sued. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Oh yeah. And it's also in some hipster palette. So that'll be great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Uh, just to, to finally, we've had this idea. We, like you said, we talked about it in 2019 and then, um, I last year you were going to have a conflict. And so I had kind of given up and I'm thrilled that, uh, I mean, yes, COVID sucked and for and 2020 sucked for many, many reasons, but we're getting <laughs> yeah. a do-over in June of, of 2021. And it'll be fun to have you at Filoli because they need to know about you as a cultural institution. So let, we'll make something, you know, happen there for your future as well. Yes. Claim it in Jesus name. I, oh. I love that. <laughs> Please do. Great. Oh, well, thank you so much. This has just been such a delight. And uh, for people who are listening, um, you will be able to find and follow Abra and see her work. I'll put the the link to her social places in our show notes. And um, if you want to send me those prints, I can put a few in our show notes to to sort of tease people because eventually you'll have those for sale on your website, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I'll have but um, I'll have for sale my website. If somebody sees one, they can just email me, and I'm happy to get it to them. Um, but I'll be bringing them to um, to Filoli as well to okay. the conference. I'll be happy to. Oh my gosh, great! I can hardly wait. Have a good month, and we will see each other in person. And I'm all vaccinated, so I can even hug me you. Me too. <laughs> I, I love it. Me too. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Abra. All right, take care. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much for joining our beautiful conversation today. There are still a few spaces left to attend the Slow Flowers Summit, and you can find all those details at slowflowerssummit.com. We are so excited to welcome our attendees to a safe, in-person, COVID-compliant, and mostly outdoor setting at Filoli Historic House and Garden. Uh, The countdown continues, and we've only got three and a half weeks left to go. Our next thank you goes to the Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top-quality products and services to the local floral industry. Visit them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. You're hearing this podcast on June 2nd, and this week we're starting the anticipation of American Flowers Week. American Flowers Week takes place June 28th through July 4th each year, and we're heading into our seventh annual campaign. Check out the links in today's show notes to find all the resources you'll need to create your own American Flowers Week activities and events. Use our branding, logos, free downloads, and all the content available at AmericanFlowersWeek.com to promote your floral enterprise and align your brand with the American Flowers Week message. This year, Slow Flowers Society has partnered with our publishing arm, Bloom Imprint, to produce a special botanical couture edition of Slow Flowers Journal. The 78-page digital magazine is available free to you. You'll be inspired and amazed at the collective talent of the Slow Flowers community of creatives, flower growers, floral designers, and their teams who produced one dozen distinctly different botanical fashions. You can find the link to our special edition in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com and download social media graphics of each floral ensemble for your own use. I want to share an invitation specifically for flower farmers. I mentioned this last week. I didn't hear from anyone, so I'm starting again. (laughs) If you're planning a special promotion, pop-up event, workshop, or any other way to celebrate American Flowers Week, I'd like to hear from you. I'll be writing a story about what flower farmers are doing during the campaign for an upcoming issue of Growing for Market. And I'm looking for ways to feature you and your plants. Please get in touch if you have something in the works. You can shoot me a note at deborah at slowflowers.com. Our final thank you goes to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Check out the full catalog at longfield-gardens.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 732,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. 
I value your support and invite you to show your thanks to support Slow Flower's ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more Slow Flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Thank you.